Welcome to the Shortwave Report for May 18, 2012. I'm your host and producer, Dan Roberts. The Shortwave Report is a 30-minute review of news and opinion heard on the shortwave radio and the internet in Northern California. Listening to international broadcasts at home is quite easy. You just need a shortwave radio with a schedule of English language broadcast or a computer with an internet connection. To help you with this, I'll announce times, frequencies, and website addresses at the conclusion of each series of stories. At the website for this show, that's www.outfarpress.com, you can find a schedule for dozens of international broadcasters in English. There you can also listen to the past five shortwave reports, find advice for listening to shortwave at home, and find internet links for global news sources. Please check it out and tell a friend. In today's edition, you'll hear reports from Spanish National Radio, NHK World Radio Japan, Radio Havana Cuba, and The Voice of Russia. We'll begin with Spanish National Radio. The first anniversary of Spain's May 15th social protest movement was celebrated across the country. For four days, hundreds of thousands of citizens spoke out against inequality, high unemployment, and cuts in social spending. The World Wildlife Fund says that biodiversity has decreased by 28% globally since 1970. In Germany, Angela Merkel's Conservative Party suffered defeats in regional elections on Sunday, with the Greens and Social Democrats getting a majority in the state legislature of Westphalia. Greece will hold fresh elections on June 17th, and Greeks began withdrawing their money from the banks. Spanish National Radio The first anniversary of Spain's May 15th social protest movement is being celebrated these days in cities across the country. On Saturday, hundreds of thousands of demonstrators protesting against corruption within the political class, among bankers and in the monarchy, against government spending cuts in health and education, income inequality, and bank bailouts took the streets. In Barcelona, the protesters were allowed to occupy a central square overnight, but in Madrid, riot police cleared the Puerta del Sol of demonstrators around 5 in the morning Sunday, arresting 18 people. Today, a judge released nine. The four-day protest is due to end on May 15th, the anniversary of the birth of the movement. One action plan today involved protesters closing down their accounts at Bankia in anger at the government's bailout of a lender with deep political connections. Spain's indignant activists celebrated their first anniversary today, taking to streets and squares around the nations to cap a four-day show of strength at the height of an economic crisis. Tens of thousands of people have packed Madrid's central Puerta del Sol square each night since the comeback demonstrations began Saturday in 80 towns and cities across the country. In the early hours of each morning, police have cleared the Madrid Square of activists determined to defy the city hall and keep a permanent presence throughout the night. Madrid police, who arrested 18 people as they cleared the square on Sunday morning, and two people when they did the same on Monday, said they had detained another eight today. By early this afternoon, dozens of activists who decry inequality, sky-high unemployment in Spain, and cuts in social spending were holding assemblies in the square again ahead of a mass rally tonight. Police, Madrid police uh, estimated about 30,000 people had taken part in the first protest on Saturday. 
The authorities in Madrid have insisted that they would not allow a repeat of last year's month-long sprawling encampment in Puerta del Sol that included everything from a canteen to a kindergarten and a library. The movement, which relies heavily on online social networks to campaign and organize, has inspired similar protests from Britain to the Occupy Wall Street campaign in the United States. Spanish Prime Minister Mariano Rajoy's conservative government, in power since December, issued a permit for the indignants to use the square only for five hours Saturday and for ten hours on each of the following three days. In Barcelona, Spain's second-largest city, the turnout on the first night was 45,000, according to police, and 220,000, according to organizers. Biodiversity has decreased by an average of 28% globally since 1970, according to the conservation group World Wildlife Fund. And, the group reports, the world would have to be 50% bigger to have enough land and forests to provide for current levels of consumption and carbon emissions. The conservation group this week launched its Living Planet Report 2012, a biennial audit of the world's environment and biodiversity, saying that unless the world addresses the problem, by the year 2030, even two planet Earths would not be enough to sustain human activity. According to the World Wildlife Fund, governments are not on track to reach an accord at next month's Sustainable Development Summit in the Brazilian city of Rio de Janeiro. Decision-making in the Eurozone has rested largely on the EU's biggest economy, Germany, and Chancellor Angela Merkel has insisted that deficit-cutting austerity programs are the best route to health for the Eurozone. However, her Conservative Party suffered a defeat in regional elections on Sunday, which may embolden opposition leaders to challenge her policies. The results from Germany's most populous state, North Rhine-Westphalia, show Ms. Merkel's opponents, the center-left Social Democrats and the Greens, have won enough to form a majority coalition in the state legislature. Germany's federal elections are due next year. Greece will hold fresh elections on June 17th. The election date was announced after party leaders met with Greek President Karolos Papaleolias this morning. Final talks to form a coalition failed yesterday, raising new concerns over Greece's future in the Eurozone. No party won a majority in the May 6th election, with several parties campaigning on an anti-austerity platform. Recent opinion polls suggest that Syriza, a leftist bloc opposed to the tough bailout conditions that came in second, would win a new election, but would still not gain enough for a parliamentary majority. EU officials fear Greece will elect an anti-bailout government, which could trigger a Greek exit from the euro. Council of State President Pangiotis Pinkoramenos will head the caretaker government until the election. Meanwhile, Greeks are withdrawing euros from banks, apparently afraid of the prospect of rapid devaluation if the country leaves the European single currency and returns to the drachma. On Monday alone, Greeks withdrew 700 million euros from banks. Those reports were from Spanish National Radio, heard from 5 to 6 p.m. at 6055, and podcasting at www.rtve.es. All the times I'm announcing are for Pacific Daylight Saving Time, so adjust them to your time zone. Next, NHK World Radio Japan. An insight about the future of the euro in light of the possible withdrawal of Greece from the eurozone. TEPCO, the operators of Fukushima nuclear power plant, admitted that they had known for five years that a tsunami could cause the backup generators to fail, causing a nuclear meltdown. 
Japan's Atomic Energy Commission has decided that recycling spent nuclear fuel is more expensive than burying it. 32,000 tons of radioactive sludge remained at initial storage sites because waste disposal companies are refusing to accept it due to safety concerns. Paul Watson, a Canadian leader of the Sea Shepherd, has been arrested in Germany on a warrant issued by Costa Rica. NHK World Radio Japan in today's Insight, Chief Economist at Daiichi Life Research Institute, Osama Tanaka, speaks to us about the future of the euro in the wake of a new round of parliamentary elections in Greece. Mr. Tanaka, what sort of impact will Greece's new parliamentary elections have on the eurozone? The world's financial markets have been shaken due to political confusion following Greece's general elections early this month. I think this indicates that the market is not yet ready for the country's possible exit from the Eurozone. There's fear that other debt-ridden Eurozone members may leave the single currency zone if the European Union allows Greece to do so. I think the financial markets are feeling that an unprecedented withdrawal from the Eurozone might eventually be a prologue to the collapse of the Eurozone. Greece decided to hold a new round of parliamentary elections, and in France, socialist François Hollande, who has campaigned on economic issues, won the runoff presidential election in early May. Considering these changes, it's believed that the axis of Europe's efforts to overcome the financial crisis is shifting to a focus on balancing economic growth and fiscal discipline. If the option to seek a better balance is chosen, the so-called excessive austerity will come under review to some extent, and the Eurozone will steer itself in the direction of solving its problems. But if Greece withdraws from the Eurozone, the European credit crisis will likely worsen. The second round of general elections will be held in about one month. During that time, I think the world will be closely watching which path Greece will take, as well as future comments by European political figures and the financial market's response, in addition to coalition negotiations among Greece's political parties following the elections. In today's Insight, we heard from Osamu Tanaka, Chief Economist at Daiichi Life Research Institute. The operator of the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear power plant says it was aware a tsunami could cause a total blackout five years before last March's disaster, but did not act on the knowledge. Tokyo Electric Power Company spoke to reporters on Tuesday. TEPCO said a pu public-private study panel concluded in 2006, two years after the Indian Ocean tsunami, that Fukushima Daiichi's backup generators could fail if a 14-meter tsunami hit the plant. The panel, including the Nuclear and Industrial Safety Agency and power utilities, hinted at the possibility of seawater entering buildings through doors and other openings. Following the assessment, TEPCO waterproofed seawater pumps used to cool reactors, as suggested by the agency. But the company failed to study ways to prevent water from entering buildings. TEPCO said it did not make, take measures because there was no clear assessment at the time that a tsunami exceeding the height of dikes could hit the plant. The company has been found to have ignored another warning two years later of a possible 10-meter tsunami. TEPCO is likely to be urged to explain how it missed the opportunities to review and correct its tsunami defenses.
A working group of Japan's Atomic Energy Commission has laid out three options regarding recycling of spent nuclear fuel. The commission has been reviewing the country's nuclear energy policy in the wake of the accident at the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear power plant in March last year. Nuclear fuel recycling had been a pillar of Japan's nuclear energy policy. It entails reprocessing plutonium from spent nuclear fuel into a uranium-plutonium mix called mixed oxide fuel, or MOX. The working group says if the goal is zero reliance on nuclear power in the short term, then fuel recycling should be discontinued and the spent fuel disposed of. However, it notes that there may be no way of disposing of the spent fuel and that nuclear reactors will eventually become unusable. The group says continuing to recycle and reprocess the spent fuel is the best choice from the view of finding adequate storage and making effective use of the uranium. But it says this option could be more costly than disposal. It says if the future scope of Japan's reliance on nuclear power generation becomes unclear, retaining both options will allow the government more flexibility to make the best choice. The group concludes that from a cost perspective alone, the most viable option is to stop recycling and dispose of the spent fuel regardless of a decision on how much nuclear energy will contribute to the power supply. More than 32,000 tons of radioactive sludge from the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear accident remain at initial storage sites, even though the government says its radiation levels are within safety limits. NHK asked the prefectural office and 26 municipalities and other bodies in Fukushima how they are handling the sludge at their sewage facilities. The sludge in the area contains radioactive fallout from the nuclear accident. NHK learned that about 80% of the 39,000 tons of sludge being kept at initial storage sites is within government safety limits and safe to process for more permanent disposal. But the sludge remains untouched due to fears among the local people. The law stipulates that sludge containing radioactive cesium levels up to 8,000 becquerels per kilogram is safe to process and must be disposed of by municipalities. Before the nuclear accident, most such sludge was recycled as cement and fertilizer, but now waste disposal companies are refusing to accept it due to safety concerns. One sewage facility in Minamisoma City, near the nuclear plant, says it is already storing more than 620 tons of contaminated sludge and may run out of space by June. The conservation group Sea Shepherd says its leader has been arrested in Germany for obstructing the activities of a Costa Rican ship in 2002. Sea Shepherd said on Sunday that its Canadian leader, Paul Watson, was arrested by German authorities at Frankfurt International Airport on a warrant issued by Costa Rica. The group released a statement calling for Watson's release. It says the incident in question occurred as Watson was filming a Costa Rican ship engaged in illegal shark fishing. Watson is also wanted by the international police agency Interpol after the Japan Coast Guard obtained a warrant for his arrest in 2010 for ordering sabotage activities against Japan's whaling fleet. Those reports were from NHK World Radio Japan, heard from 10 p.m. to 10.30 at 6110 or on the web at www.nhk.or.jp. On to Radio Havana, Cuba. 
The U.S. Treasury Department has tightened restrictions on trips to Cuba by non-Cuban Americans, saying violators will be fined up to $65,000. Chilean students have begun a new series of protests against educational fees. The United States killed 11 in two new drone attacks in Yemen, a country that it is not at war with. The Obama administration has decided to sell weapons to the government of Bahrain, despite the monarchy's repression of pro-democracy protest. Radio Havana, Cuba. The U.S. Treasury Department has tightened restrictions on trips to Cuba by non-Cuban Americans, saying any violation of such measures will be punishable by a fine of up to $65,000. A statement from the Treasury Office of Foreign Assets Control, OFAC, had warned that last March that the White House would retaliate against any attempt to make tourism under the U.S. travel policy established in 2009 by President Barack Obama. Washington's admonition was directed to companies promoting travel itineraries that did not comply with the strict people-to-people exchange program outlined by the U.S. government. It responded to allegations of U.S. visitors sunbathing and taking salsa lessons, activities classified as leisure by the White House. The changes apply only to U.S. residents who are non-Cuban Americans. U.S. residents of Cuban descent who have relatives in Cuba can travel to the island under a different category, family reunification. The new wording requires applicants for licenses to thoroughly detail their itineraries, explaining why they need to meet with Cuban government officials and also insist that a representative of the licensee must accompany each tour. Two paragraphs added to the regulations also reinforce the message that tourism trips are illegal and punishable by a fine of up to $65,000. Analysts say the this tightening of the much-criticized travel restrictions is due to pressures from conservative Cuban-Americans lawmakers who are against cultural and educational exchanges. Social protests in Chile gained their early momentum Tuesday with a new march on the main streets of Santiago called by the Confederation of Chilean Students. The march aimed at rejecting segregation generated by the socio-political model in the education system. In calling the march, spokesman for the student organization, Noam Tittleman, said, We have the highest fees and one of the most exclusive educational models worldwide. Tittleman, who is also president of the Student Federation of the Catholic University, added, They are deceiving the people and profiting from the dreams of millions of Chileans. Another spokesman for the Student Confederation, Gabriel Boric, said that the government proposals in Chile, like tax reform project, have nothing to do with reality. Today's mobilization began three days of protest called by social organizations to demand the implementation of a free public education system in Chile. Protests are being staged five days before President Sebastián Piñera presents the 2012 report on his three-year administration. 
At least 11 people have been killed in two apparent U.S. drone attacks in southern Yemen. Yemeni officials said the victims were alleged al-Qaeda militants. The attack would mark at least the second U.S. drone strike in the past week following the killing of a suspect wanted in the 2000 bombing of the USS Cole. U.S. President Barack Obama's top counterterrorism advisor, John Brennan, is currently in Yemen for talks with the Yemeni government. The Barack Obama administration is proceeding with military sales to Bahrain despite the ruling monarchy's ongoing repression of pro-democracy protests. The U.S. State Department has announced it will allow a multi-million dollar weapons shipment to the Bahrainian government, citing national security interests. The announcement came just days after the Bahrainian government vowed tougher action in its crackdown on protesters. As the United States confirmed the weapons sales, thousands of Bahrainians marched near the capital in Manama, to call for the release of political prisoners. In response to the announcement of more weapon sales to Bahrain, the group Human Rights First issued this statement, the United States can in no doubt be clear about the reality of the repression in Bahrain. Where is the progress that warrants the reward of arms? Those reports were from Radio Havana, Cuba, heard from 1 to 2 p.m. at 11760 and from 6 p.m. to midnight at either 6060-6010 or 6000. Also streaming on the web from 6 p.m. to midnight at www.radiohc.cu and now podcasting at World Radio Network, wrn.org. If you have questions or comments about the shortwave report or would like to make a donation for production cost of this unfunded program, I may be reached through the website or by writing to Dan Roberts at P.O. Box 1162, Willits, California, 95490. Donations are the only financial support I receive for producing this program. We will conclude with the voice of Russia. In Chicago, state, federal, and special forces troops have gathered to prevent demonstrators from interrupting the NATO summit being held there this weekend. The Voice of Russia. Black Hawk helicopter gunships swooping down in the middle of the night. Highly trained special forces troops fast roping on a building tops. Five to six hundred soldiers armed with the latest state-of-the-art weaponry taking up key defensive positions and forming chokeholds. Backed up by armored vehicles, federal officers in full battle dress patrolling extra hot zones in essential parts of the city, while strategically placed sniper units are actively watching for anyone resisting the random strip searches. No. We aren't talking about a typical day in Kabul. We're talking about the upcoming NATO summit. And this year's NATO summit in Chicago promises to be the biggest one ever, with some 60 countries expected to attend. Foreign delegations are to arrive in the city over the weekend, and Chicago is bracing for all that it will bring. Thousands of international dignitaries, reporters, and, of course, protesters from around the country. Chicago Mayor Rem Emanuel urged President Obama months ago to bring gathering to Chicago because he says it will draw international recognition to the city, not to mention an immediate economic benefit. One accounting firm estimated it to be in the neighborhood of $128 million. Emmanuel said in an interview, I expect that what will come from this is public exposure that will drive economic opportunity. He continued by saying, I wouldn't ask for it otherwise. 
He added that cities like New York, Paris, and London all have taken part in similar international events. The cost to the city, Mr. Emanuel has said, will not be covered by Chicago taxpayers, but by private corporate donations and federal reimbursements. Emanuel said, We can do this. Our city's fully capable of this. Not all Chicagoans are ready for the summit, however. Some people said they intended to steer clear of downtown entirely, to stay home from work on Monday, the second day of the two-day meeting, or even close their businesses to avoid tangled streets, police searches, or crowds of demonstrators. The formal meeting of NATO is to start on Saturday, but by Wednesday evening, buses carrying demonstrators from Occupy movements around the nation were expected to begin converging on Chicago. The concerns of demonstrators vary widely. Among them are those that say they oppose war, and those who say foreign military spending, and the work of NATO in particular, has taken away from efforts for health care, education, immigration, and other pressing matters that are close to home, such as finding work or how to provide for their families in the failing economy. Estimates of how many protesters may ultimately appear vary. On Sunday, in what is expected to be the largest in a series of demonstrations, a group plans to march to McCormick Place, the site of the meeting, led by uniformed Iraq war veterans who intend to give back their medals as a gesture against the war. Local organizers say they plan displays of civil disobedience before the meeting ends, including an attempt to shut down the Boeing headquarters on Monday, but say the city's preparation for security has been an overreaction and that they have no intention of marring their broad anti-war message with a violent outbreak. In Focus spoke about the Chicago War on Demonstrators with Rachel Perotta, a member of the Occupy Chicago press team. The city of Chicago is running a classic fear-mongering campaign attempting to vilify and demonize the people who are coming to town, not to cause trouble, but to stand up against the war and violence of NATO. Recently, a group of people in a car who had come from out of town were pulled over. The police told them that they would beat their expletives and basically made it clear that the police are here to intimidate and potentially inflict violence upon the people who are coming here to peacefully demonstrate in our city. If you think about who's going to be in the street, the police are the ones with projectile weapons. The police are the ones with chemical weapons. They're the ones who are dressed in riot suits, really just armed to the teeth, versus demonstrators who are here to peacefully speak out against NATO. For nearly a year now, the Chicago establishment has prepared for the event. In January, repressive laws were pushed through the Chicago City Council, giving vast new powers to surveil, suppress, and criminalize protest. One of the new city ordinances, which has been dubbed the sit-down-and-shut-up law, requires that a permit be obtained in advance, not only for all marches in the streets, but for any gathering, picket line, or march, even on the sidewalks. Organizers are also required to register in advance all banners carried by more than two persons and sound equipment on wheels. In addition, it requires organizers to obtain $1 million of insurance and liability policies. This is backed up by penalties of up to $1,000 in fines and 10 days in jail that can be levied on protest organizers. In April, Chicago Police Superintendent Gary McCarthy announced his strategy towards combating the protesters. He said, the idea is to fight this like a ground war, and you take it spot by spot by spot and hold on to it and fill that void with police, community, and resources to prevent the backslide of that community. In a sign of things to come, on Wednesday, May the 16th, at least a dozen people had been arrested in connection to early demonstrations, mostly on trespassing charges.
That report was from the voice of Russia. Russia is now heard from 6 p.m. to 11 at 15425-9800 and 9665 or through their website www.english.ruvr.ru. All the times I've announced are for Pacific Daylight Saving Time. Please adjust them to your time zone. One of my goals in producing this show is to encourage people to listen to international broadcast. You could use a shortwave radio at home, which is far simpler than you might think. However, if you use the internet, listening globally is easy. See the links at this program's website. Every Friday morning, I post a new shortwave report at the website for this show. That's www.outfarpress.com. At my website, you can also listen to past shows, find internet links for international broadcasters, make a safe donation through PayPal, and get advice for listening at home. The shortwave report is free to rebroadcast upon notification. The shortwave report is produced and distributed off the electrical grid in Northern California using solar panels. I'm your host and producer, Dan Roberts. Thanks for listening.